Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio heard from a leading authority on sports and protest, chatted with a prolific mystery author, and talked parties with some Hyde Park legends. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for July 27, 2018. I-94 spoke with author Janice Law about her large body of work. Law, who has 24 books under her belt, discusses bad timing, her non-traditional characters, and the shape of novels. I-94 with Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. We do have a, a actually a noted uh, Lambda Award-winning author, uh, the author of, we, we figured out it's either 23 or 24 books. Um, she has been writing since... Uh, Early 70s, right? 70, 76. Her name is Janice Law, but she's better known as Janice Law Trekker. She's actually my mother, uh, and she is in town, so we thought we would put her on the spot. Uh, she has written a series of books that are out now from Mysterious Press that feature Francis Bacon, but she has, as I mentioned, a very long career writing not only uh, mysteries uh, with a detective named Anna Peters, uh, but historical books, historical fiction, uh, and literary fiction. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So we want to start off. Um, I, I, this is one of the few shows that I've actually done no prep at all for because I've read <laughs> over the years these, these 24 books. Uh, and we do have some selections, uh, of course, read today, as always, by Shanna Van Volt and music from the International Anthem Archive. But I wanted to start out, uh, uh, Janice, and ask you, how did you start out writing? I mean, obviously, I, I grew up with you and I know your, your background intimately, but our listeners don't. And uh, I know that you've spent a great deal of time publishing, and it's it's a it's an incredibly long career. Twenty four books is a lot of books. It's amazing. Uh, I mean, it, that really is. And you you write short stories. You're published fairly continuously in Alfred Hitchcock and Ellery Queen. You you had a long career in newspapers. You worked for uh, you you've been published in the Hartford Current, the West Hartford News, uh, Parisian uh, film criticism, and all that. Tell us how first of all how you got interested in writing in the first place, and what drove you to write novels in particular, because it's a it's a fairly specialized pastime. Right. Well, I didn't want to be a writer at all. Um, I wanted to be a reader. It's so much easier. <laughs> and really, right through um, getting my master's, writing was tears and anguish. <laughs> it really was. It didn't come naturally to me at all. Um, then I was uh, teaching. I was ill following a, a rather bad uh, ectopic pregnancy. And as one does when you are sick, I started reading Pulp Fiction. I started reading mysteries, uh, Eric Ambler, The God of Suspense, Raymond Chandler, Agatha Christie, you know, all the, the big names of the 70s and 60s and so on, Dorothy Sayers. And then I got through them and I began to get down to the bottom of the heap. And I started to say to my husband, this is awful stuff. <laughs> you know, this is really poor. I could do as well. And my husband, being a natural-born, fast, never-edits writer, said, well, why don't you try? And um, I actually did. I didn't start on short stories, as most people do who want to write novels. I started right in with novels. And I picked mystery novels because um, it, they had a better shape. You know, you have a shape, and finding a shape in writing was always what was hard for me. It still is. Uh, you'll notice the novels are kind of picaresque. They're chases, extended chases, uh, from one thing to another, rather than a, a really shapely suspense or really shapely whodunit. Um, I started, I sold my first one. That was in the good old days when you wrote and you sent your work off. 
and people published it. And you didn't have to promote it. Where did you send it to? I, I sent it to an agent, and she sent it first. It was turned down by the first house, and then it went to Houghton Mifflin, which was one oh, of the wow. really good houses yeah. of the time. Yeah. Uh, it's not like that anymore. <laughs> it was, um, it really was, as they called it the gentleman's profession. And it was all very low-key. They didn't pay you much. But they took you out to lunch, and we had a small child at that time. They gave you free children's books. It was very much lower key. I was very stupid. Had I been smart, I would have networked. I would have gone to writers' conferences. I would have joined the Mystery Writers of America. Um, I was terminally shy. The very thought of going to a conference where I would have to schmooze with people just made my stomach hurt. I didn't know you were supposed to do that. I thought writers wrote, and you send it off, and uh, that was not true. So um, while I've had a long career, and it was never more than a nice part-time job, which is about what most writers make. We had a, a, an event here last night. One of the guys at one of the bands works for Penguin, and we were actually talking about the publishing industry mm-hmm. today, and he was telling me how political it is, and that you know if you don't get out there, and you know, and you also, we were talking about with bookstores. We 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 work with the bookstore. We do our events at Pilsen Community, and they were, he was saying, well, you have to have this much new fiction versus used for us to have a rep and all these things. And I always, it's it's doing this and learning more and more about the publish industry publishing industry has been disheartening for me because it's it, it makes me a little bit sad like you're you know, glad you're a librarian yeah yeah i'm, not, I'm glad i don't have to yeah. sell and publish and right. promote things I, and you know a lot of the indie presses are great too but you know it's just the isn't that what an agent is for to do the schmoozing and the and the selling and the promoting not anymore yeah. um i i had a wonderful agent who was older than me unfortunately and retired and my next one just seemed to send stuff out. That's all she did was send it out. There's another aspect, um, since you're talking to a woman mystery writer, I will tell you that there was a lot of prejudice, even in the 70s. For example, my first book went into a second printing, the Anna Peters. It was an Edgar nominee. That was the best big first payoff, novel, right? the big payoff. Yeah. Oh, I have that too. That's the one I remember I told you I had two of your books. That's okay, the other one. Yeah, that was my, my very first. And um, my agent attempted to sell paperback rights because paperback rights was one of the ways you did make money. You got a modest advance, and then you hoped to sell paperback rights. And one of the big houses, I forget whether it was Macmillan or, or who it was that did paperback, and she said, you know, we have this novel, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, they said, we have Amanda Cross. We have our woman mystery writer. Mm-hmm. There was one to a customer. So I've, I've had an interesting trajectory. When I started out, there was sex discrimination. And now at the end of my career, there's age discrimination. <laughs> okay. It was my fate, clearly. And of course, you, one of the books that you wrote, was it the big payoff that came out when the printers went on strike? Or was that the next one? Um, I, I don't know. It was a Gemini trip. One of them came out. And then I had one that I sold to Macmillan to Michelle Slung, who is, a, is now a, is one, of the, one of the very ancient and respected um, editors. And she got my contract ready. She went in to have it signed, and they said, we're closing down that whole division. 
<laughs> it cursed the book. I never sold it again. What, what was that book? Um, it was, I forget the name of it now. It was uh, set around the sports world. It was a model and a um, sports reporter. Oh, okay. uh, my husband has been for 60 I, years, 60 right? years uh, a newspaper sports reporter. And he's one of the reasons I think I was um, so lacking in confidence with my own writing because on one of my first dates with him, we went to a game. Where else would we go? Syracuse Chiefs, right? No, this was, this was I think, in Hartford. But anyway, we went to the game that he was covering. What sport? And uh, Probably would have been ice hockey. No, I think it was baseball. Baseball, okay. In but Hartford? It, it, um, would have been a Legion Would have been a Legion oh, Okay, an American Legion game. And in those days, there was no computer, no, no internet. And when he finished the game, he had to call the story in because of the time sequence. He couldn't go back to the current and write it as he, as he would have. And it was very disconcerting. He had his little reporter's notebook. He calls up. He gets them on the phone. And he begins dictating without notes, including punctuation, right off the top of his head. And I thought, oh, I <laughs> well, I'd had trouble writing. Um, but then once I started, um, you know, fiction, it's true. You are making it all up. And... Um, although I have a, it's funny, fiction, I'm really stupid. I start, I have the start in some cases. For example, one of my favorite books was called Under Orion. And that, and that was, was a, an Anna Peters mystery. That was an Anna Peters, and it was a gift. I've got to tell you about the gift, and then I'll tell you how it started. We went to Trier, which is um, one of the crossing points of the Rhine in Germany. In fact, our local butcher told me he crossed the Rhine with whatever unit he was in in the Second World War, right there. That was Mort? That was Mort the yeah. Butcher. It was, um, their motto is before Rome Trier. That's how ancient it was. Huh. And it had an intact, not the top of the amphitheater, like the Colosseum in Rome, but the underneath. There was this sort of ruin of, of seats, then a big grassy area, and then you went down where they'd kept the gladiators, where the animals oh. had kept, where the, you know, this special effects stuff. And there was water because, of course, it had flooded over time. And you were on a catwalk. And I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> somebody dies right here. It's perfect. And uh, when I got home, I was doing Anna's. And one line came into my head. And it was on Friday, Harry invited the crazy man to dinner. And it's, it's Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. And that was enough. You know, so it's, the mind is very strange. Now, when I do nonfiction, it's all planned out. But fiction, um, when I was writing one a year, basically, um, when I'd go to bed at night, I'd say, now I need the next five pages. I need to know what happens to Anna in wherever she was. And once I got into the book, lo and behold, there it would be the next morning. But that was all I'd know. How did you get involved with uh, Mysterious Press? I, I, I've been to the uh, Mysterious Bookshop in Manhattan. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it's uh, it's really. It sounds cool. I I've, I didn't know about it before I read. Well, my stepkid lives in Manhattan, so we spent ah. a great deal of time there. And they live just, they live by the, <clears throat> by the east, just north of the Lower East Side by the river. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Right? By, by the, the Hudson, Queen's Hudson Yards. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And. My wife and I do a lot of walking, and I saw that one day, and I'm like, let's go check this place mm -hmm. out. And um, I was actually looking for um, an author who wrote very weird mysteries 
He's from here, and I can't think of his name. He used to live in the same apartment building as Capone. Oh, I know you're talking about, and I can't remember his name. Yeah, he writes these really, like, you know, the two-headed monkey. You know, just these very (laughs) strange. This is all made up on the fly. But at any rate, I thought that was a really – until we we were going to have you on the show, I never knew they had their own press. And uh, how did you get involved with that? Well, desperation, actually. Um, (laughs) I've always been a hard sell. The people that like my work really like it, but there's never been enough of them, alas. And when my really good old agent retired, I had written um, the first bacon, and I sent it to my new agent, who I thought was useless in time. I have gone through a number of agents, and I don't know why, because I'm so pleasant and undemanding. <laughs> but I go through them because I guess I don't listen always to what they want me to do. Okay. But anyway, um, she had sent it out, and nobody wanted it. And I thought, these are pretty good. This is kind of strange. And uh, finally, I left my agent, and I started querying. Nobody wanted this. I think I realized later it was because of the gay character. I cannot get a really? yeah. I cannot get a book author gig in my area except at our own little library. Sports spoke to artist Jessica Stockholder about her upcoming residency in Berlin. Stockholder discussed materiality, language, and the essentialism of production to existence. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Uh, and joined by uh, art world legend Jessica Stockholder. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. Uh, so uh, many people in the art world. Is it weird that people refer to you as an art world legend? Very weird. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, you've shown. I was looking at the neck tattoo. You've shown at MoMA, PS1, the Pompidou, pretty much everywhere in New York. Um, and you, you've been on Art 21. I think your work is influential over a whole generation of uh, younger uh, artists. And so, you know, it might feel weird, but I think it's an okay term to uh, to apply. Yeah, but a legend isn't the same as a living person. Oh, uh, yeah. fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> so we maybe so should living have... Legend? Living yeah, legend? living legend. Living legend. Um, but maybe to get in here, you know, uh, while we in art circles uh, definitely have a lot of familiarity with your work, uh, not necessarily all of our listening audience do. So maybe let's just start broad with the big picture. What do you make and what interests you to make it? Hmm. That is a big, big question. Um, well, I make stuff. I make stuff with stuff. I use all different kinds of materials. And uh, I use a lot of paint and color. And the work kind of is rooted in, grew from making paintings. I think in some essential way I'm a picture maker, but I'm also a sculptor. And I'm interested in the way pictures unfold over time in my own work. Um, and, uh, and I'm interested in the relationship between abstraction and immediacy and concrete things and concrete experience. That's one way to go at it. 
I could also say that I'm really interested in um, making space for subtlety and complexity and uh, I care a lot about boundaries and blurring boundaries and uh, kind of opening up space to first of all surprise myself and make make room for me to have new thoughts and I hope that and that's what I like best in art generally and other people's art too that it can open up something so I can become aware of my own limitations. So you're against the wall. Um, no boundary. I am against the wall. <laughs> okay. In many ways. But uh, <laughs> but okay. So so maybe I mean that that is the big picture. But and maybe you're up we, against the wall. Maybe we yeah. can connect this uh, to something tangible. So you have a show coming up uh, in September in Austin, I believe. Uh, maybe we could just talk about some of the works and some more specific things that you're putting together for that show. Okay, that's a big show, a lot of specific works. There's a show, there's two spaces under the umbrella of the Contemporary Austin. There's the Jones Center, which is downtown and inside space. And in there, I'm showing work from the studio, most relatively new work that I can talk about. And then they also have Laguna Gloria, which is an outdoor uh, kind of sculpture park. And uh, they're commissioning a work for that that won't be finished by September, but it's kind of on its way. So is that something that will involve during the exhibition itself? The there'll be unveiling of new um, the commission itself, or or it's just no, an ongoing project. It, I mean, that. the ideal was that that work would be finished at the same time, but it just won't be. Construction is often like that. Logistics. It's, yes. <laughs> um, well, and and talking about um, talking about your work, one of the wor things that has always sort of been a hallmark of your work for me is the ambition of scale like I I think about um, that piece from 1999 that is that goes up like 40 feet and is actual full-size cars just mm -hmm. uh, imposed upon um, like colored in these super bright ways on this sort of mesh wall that that are then kind of placed as though they're moving up a road and uh, I remember seeing photos of it in '99 and thinking, like, how has that has that scale even work? Like, because that's that is well beyond the the scale, the traditional scale of uh, sculpture or sculptors. It, but your all, work always sort of maintains that ambition. Well, I work in relationship to context. So if I'm in my studio. I, um, so if you have all the space in the world, you'll just take all the space in the world? As long as I have all the support in the world. So, yeah. so like a goldfish, <laughs> you grow to the size of the bowl. Yes, okay. yes. And um, that was a, a sculpture park in Belgium, and uh, the work was called Landscape Linoleum. And they had the support of city workers, so it took some time. We kind of had to hang around and wait for the city workers to have time for us in between their city work. But they were, they had the tools and machines to build that scaffolding and to raise the cars up. There were no motors in the cars, so they were. I don't think they had tires either, weren't they? They were like these kind of shell. I think they, they had tires? tires. Yeah, I think they had tires. Maybe I'm wrong. It, uh, no, I'm just, I'm trying to remember, because I remember that image and that striking kind of potency of that operating at that scale. And for me, it's one of those spaces where it concretizes that idea that you are both a sculptor and a picture maker in that you tend to take all sorts of different materials and slam them together. And some of them refer to kind of raw construction and some of them refer to, to commercial culture. And then 
sometimes they just get paint like half of them gets painted really bright and the other half is sort of presented in its mm-hmm. its raw form and for me that image was exactly that like these cars are then painted into this super bright thing so they become part of a picture um, but they're still kind of functioning sculpturally or or relief wise as cars settle down duncan sorry <laughs> <laughs> um and that, you know, that was a sculpture park, and, it, and it, it's all about nature in quotation marks. But a park in the middle of a city is um, also an artifice. It's not really nature. So the, you know, flat plain of grass was, I kind of treated it like a white wall in a gallery. And the plain that the trees presented, I made, I made that scaffolding against the plain. And I cut holes into the grass and cut um, lines of color into the grass. So I treated the whole park as the same kind of artifice that a gallery is. And the white cube gallery um, is full of content. You know, it presents itself as empty, like a white page is empty. But but all of these things have expectations and hierarchies and politics attached to them. So I, I, I take advantage of the space that's offered, and I'm also interested in how I intersect those different layers of significance that are embedded in them. So going back, it, now you're talking about uh, work that is uh, of enormous scale that uh, you're saying still functions pictorially, um, and I, I agree with you, but that must come from a place of, of having some training originally maybe as a, a painter, or, or I'm wondering where that first introduction of kind of like uh, breaking out of the picture plane came for you. Mm-hmm. Was that an aha moment? Like where did that, where did the beginning of this begin? I started just making pictures, painting, drawing. I asked my father for drawing lessons. And there were two artists in Vancouver, where I grew up, in Canada, um, who he... Oh, now I see why Duncan has you on. (laughs) His hidden agenda. Are you Canadian? Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't you tell? I, I do not think being Canadian diminishes Jessica Stockholder's contribution to culture. No, it only makes it bigger. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like our bigger hearts. Um, so my dad introduced me to, uh, there was Nora Blank, who's a painter in Vancouver, and Maury Baden, who's a sculptor. And he's actually an American sculptor from the West Coast who met, spent most of his life teaching at the University of Victoria on Vancouver Island. And... Uh, he was he was a sculptor is a sculptor who really loves uh, painting and picture making so i was painting on unstretched canvas and he was very critical of the unstretched canvas as um, not having contextual relationship to the wall and he talked about easel paintings as as being rectangles and they mirror the wall because most walls are rectilinear and flat like the wall and i was I didn't want to make stretched canvases because I was very involved in the materiality of the canvas and sticking, mixing stuff with the paint and sticking stuff to it. So I, instead of making a flat, you know, canvas, I started to cut things up and place them on the wall and let pieces of the wall enter the work. So it sounds like it was almost an innate language that you just understood from the beginning. It wasn't necessarily even a departure. It was just a this is what makes the most sense. Well, I think there's something innate in that, you know, making things is 
what I, how I like to engage the world, you know, moving stuff around. And um, I think people do have an innate kind of constitutional like desire way of being in the world that certain and mine is certainly to move stuff around and think through the movement of my body and process of things but you know there there were lots of other people in the world that entered my thinking you know Judy Pfaff was getting a lot of attention then Frank Stella's work you know has a picture making Schwitter's Maury Baden had a good friend, Steve Davis, whose work he was sharing with me at the time, who was, was working between the wall and objects. So, I mean, none of us actually thinks all alone. And, uh, and, I, and that's part of why I like using objects in my work, because they bring, you know, every object that people have made and designed has kind of intelligence and thoughts embedded in it. And I don't use them in a really controlled way. I don't, I'm not lining things up and kind of making picture sentences. But, I, but part of the content of my work is how all of those things rattle together and that, that, that everything is contentful. Floor is real sticky. Did someone leave the gas on? Nope. Weird. Hey, bud. Morning. Two things. One, have you seen my audio recorder? No, not yet. Coffee before cleaning. Mm, coffee sounds good. I'm sure the recorder will turn up. Help yourself. Man, we went late last night. What was the second thing? Is that your car on fire outside? Nope. Never seen it before. <sighs> hey guys, is the uh, is the stove on? It smells like burning. That's in here. the first thing I checked. It's it's actually that there's a car on fire outside. Huh. Oh, hey, your car, Jess? Is Jesse Jess? I saw a ghost, and I think we should go catch it. We have been over this, Kyle. Listen, I... Do you want some coffee? Uh, Thanks, but no, the caffeine makes me jittery and paranoid. <laughs> Did you guys have a party last night and not invite me? Um... Oh, no. Uh, this is an art installation ah. about today's socio-political climate. So why is she cleaning it up, then? Women have to lead the way, Kyle. Yeah, right, okay. Historically speaking, the car out front's got about five minutes until the fire hits the gas tank. So if and if it's any of yours... You know, we should start filling buckets. No, not me. Nope. Okay, so Jess, it's real late. I'm out back at Ed's Potstickers talking to this guy who sort of works there, when all of a sudden, I feel this spiritual Holy hand... Holy crap, there's a car on fire outside. No! no. Well, did you call the fire department? Uh, oh, yeah. Right, yeah, right, we, we should have right. done that. We, we should have, definitely.
This week on The Trump Diaries. Trump is ripped in the wake of his obsequious performance in Helsinki. Ivanka goes out of business. Trump attacks Iran trying to flip the script. Michael Cohen has Trump on tape. And it's a bad time to be a bald eagle or any other living thing. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 546, July 19th. Continuing his whipsawing over Russia in the wake of a much-criticized meeting with Vladimir Putin, Trump replied no to a question from a reporter about whether or not he believes Russia is still targeting the United States. This is at odds with every other American politician and intelligence expert. Last week, his own head of intelligence, Dan Coates, said that, quote, the digital infrastructure that serves this country is literally under attack. Intelligence officials in the U.S. and U.K. also now believe Russia is planning to ramp up digital operations targeting Western countries now that the World Cup has ended. Trump later defended his summit with Putin, claiming baldly that, quote, people at the higher ends of intelligence loved my press conference performance in Helsinki. A photo taken by a Times photographer showed that Trump crossed out a line in his prepared remarks in his press conference. Trump X'd out a line about bringing those responsible for election hacking to justice in his statement, correcting his remarks during his press conference with Putin. The woman charged with secretly acting as a Russian intelligence official offered sex in exchange for influence at a gun rights organization. Maria Butina has been charged with, quote, engaging in a years-long conspiracy to work covertly in the U.S. as an undeclared agent of the Russian Federation to advance the interests of her country. Her actions are believed to have been directed by Alexander Torshin. He is a key figure at Russia's central bank. Butina is alleged to have been given a budget of $125,000 to infiltrate the NRA. Torshin is being investigated for illegally funding money to Trump's campaign via the NRA. Butina has been jailed as an extreme flight risk. In the wake of Butina's jailing, Russia's social media ops team roared to life, seeding the internet with the meme, Free Maria Butina, claiming she is an innocent Russian national. CNN reports that Cambridge Analytica's Facebook data set was accessed from and by Russia. Cambridge Analytica had gathered data on tens of millions of Americans. On a TV appearance with Tucker Carlson, Trump questioned why the USA would defend another NATO member. Trump said, quote, Montenegro is a tiny country with very strong people. They're very aggressive people. They may get aggressive and congratulations, you're in World War III. NATO is actually predicated on Article 5, and the only time Article 5 has been invoked was after 9-11. Day 547, July 20th. Trump's fixer and lawyer Michael Cohen recorded a conversation with Trump two months before the presidential election, in which they discussed payments to Karen McDougal, the former Playboy model who alleges she had an affair with Trump. Lawyer Rudy Giuliani confirmed that Trump had discussed payments to McDougal with Cohen on the tape. When informed about the recording, Trump responded, I can't believe Michael would do this to me. Trump's lawyers waived attorney-client privilege in regards to that recording. At least 12 such tapes were seized in the FBI raid on Cohen's home and hotel room. That tape increased scrutiny on American media, the company that owns the National Enquirer. They bought McDougal's story and then killed it. Prosecutors are investigating whether or not AMI violated campaign finance laws with their so-called catch and kill on behalf of Cohen and Trump. That would not be covered by First Amendment press protections. Trump invited Putin to visit the White House this fall for a second summit. This came despite confusion among his advisors over what Trump and Putin had agreed to, much less talked about. Trump tweeted that he is, quote, already looking forward to our second meeting so we can start implementing some of the many things discussed. That news also blindsided Dan Coats, Trump's head of intelligence, who, when told of the news, exhaled loudly and said, say that again? Okay, that will be special. Republicans in the House Intelligence Committee blocked an attempt to subpoena the interpreter who sat in on Trump's one-on-one -on -one meeting with Putin. 
Democrats had wanted that interpreter to testify and tell Congress exactly what Trump and Putin discussed. The Interior Department's internal watchdog is investigating whether Ryan Zinke, the Secretary of the Interior, violated conflict of interest laws. Zinke was involved in a real estate deal with Halliburton Chairman David Lessar. In addition, Zinke reportedly suppressed evidence relating to archaeological digs in his review of national monuments. And Trump criticized the Federal Reserve for raising interest rates, saying he was, quote, not thrilled by the rate hikes. No president has ever commented on Fed business. Day 548, July 21st. The Intercept reports that the reason the FBI reopened an investigation into Clinton's emails just 11 days before the election was that they were overwhelmed with the urgency of investigating connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. James Comey famously dismissed those so-called new emails nine days before the election. Trump is planning to strip the Endangered Species Act of provisions that extend protections to species in decline, regardless of whether they are listed as endangered or threatened. The Endangered Species Act has been credited with saving the American alligator and the bald eagle. Trump said he will slap tariffs on $500 billion of Chinese goods. I'm not doing this for politics. I'm doing this to do the right thing for our country. We have been ripped off by China for a long time. And the Department of Defense estimated that between 5,000 to 7,000 service members could march in Trump's military parade, scheduled for November 10th. The parade will cost north of $12 million, the same as the South Korean war exercises that Trump repeatedly criticized as, quote, an incredible waste. Day 549, July 22nd. New York is investigating whether the Trump Foundation violated state tax laws. The investigation by the Department of Tax and Finance mirrors a lawsuit filed by that state's attorney general. Trump's tax returns could be made public as part of the investigation. EPA staff tried to protect their former head, Scott Pruitt, from formaldehyde exposure. Staff at the EPA arranged for Pruitt's new office desk to be aired out in a warehouse so he wouldn't have to breathe in any of the fumes. At the time, Pruitt was attempting to suppress the release of a port on the health dangers from that very same chemical. Day 550, July 23rd. The Justice Department released their grounds for a FISA warrant on former Trump staffer Carter Page. The warrant, which is damning, says that the FBI believes Page has been the subject of targeted recruitment by the Russian government to undermine and influence the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. The application also said Page has been collaborating and conspiring with the Russian government. The release of that warrant ethered several Republican claims, notoriously authored in a House report from Devin Nunes. Unbowed by facts, Trump claimed the released documents proved the Justice Department and the FBI misled the courts as a pretext to spy on the Trump team for the political gain of crooked Hillary Clinton and the DNC. The documents, in fact, show damaging ties between his campaign and Russia. Trump also claimed that Russian interference was all a big hoax and that the Mueller investigation should end because it's totally conflicted and discredited. Page, for his part, called the claims in the warrant a smear campaign and a complete joke. Trump then threatened Iran in an all-caps tweet with, quote, consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered. The tweet was in response to a speech by Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, who warned the U.S. that any conflict with Iran would result in the mother of all wars. He was reacting to a speech made by Mike Pompeo to a group of Iranian Americans. Trump also said, never ever threaten the United States again. Be cautious. Day 551, July 24th. Trump announced up to $12 billion in emergency relief for farmers hurt by his trade war in an effort to insulate food producers from looming financial losses. The aid to farmers would come through a direct assistance program. The moves indicate Trump is preparing to move ahead with his trade war and his tariffs despite widespread opposition from his own party and his base. 
The Trump administration said that more than 550 migrant parents whose children were separated from them are no longer in the United States. A report filed ahead of a hearing in a district court says that nearly one-fifth of the 2,500 parents whose children were taken from them after crossing the border were swiftly deported before they could be reunited with their children. Trump is considering revoking the security clearances of James Comey, John Brennan, James Clapper, and other Obama-era national security officials who criticized him. Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said in a conference the former officials, quote, politicized their positions by accusing him of inappropriate contact with Russia. Day 552, July 25th. Attorney General Jeff Sessions repeated the phrase, lock her up, during a speech to conservative high school students, chuckling as the crowd began the chant. Sessions was speaking at a conference hosted by a conservative organization. In his speech, he criticized American universities, saying they were, quote, creating a generation of sanctimonious, sensitive, supercilious snowflakes. Members of the audience then began chanting, lock her up. Lock her up, Sessions said, laughing. I heard that a long time over the last campaign. Alleged lawyer Rudy Giuliani said Trump would agree to an interview with Robert Mueller as long as there were no questions about potential obstruction of justice. The only questions Trump would be willing to answer about potential collusion with Russia and the Trump campaign. Those comments show how weak Trump's legal position actually is, and of course Mueller is investigating if Trump obstructed justice in firing FBI head James Comey. Trump then claimed that Russia would help the Democrats in midterms, the latest salvo and attempt to distract from the stifling pressure on him in the wake of his meeting with Putin. Quote, I'm very concerned that Russia will be fighting very hard to have an impact on the upcoming election. No president has been tougher on Russia than me. They'll be pushing very hard for the Democrats. They definitely don't want Trump. In fact, Vladimir Putin is on the record as saying he preferred Trump in the 2016 election. Ivanka Trump shut down her namesake clothing and shoes company. The brand experienced strong sales in 2016, but was a lightning rod for boycotts and criticism. 18 retailers had also dropped the line, citing poor sales and performance. 52% of voters believe Russia has compromising information on Donald Trump. 71% of Americans think Roe versus Wade should remain the law of the land. And just 41% approve of Trump, the lowest number ever for a sitting president. These are the Trump Diaries. This is Hell spoke with sports writer Howard Bryant about the protests by black athletes roiling American sports. Has the growing militarization of professional football contributed to our current political climate? Can protests be successful in this corporate age? This is Hell with Chuck Mertz airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. So what explains to you why sport doesn't see fighting for civil rights as the right thing to do? And to you, How much does this reveal white supremacy embedded within sports, uh, within the leagues, within team ownership, or even the general public that makes up the fans? Absolutely, because because when you look at the structure of professional sports, it's very simple. White owners, white coaches, white media, white season ticket buyer, black player. So through that lens, it is a a lens of, of white supremacy in some ways, in a lot of ways, because they control it and the players perform it. And so, and a few people get to trickle on through, obviously. And when I say a few, it's not hyperbole. There is one black owner in professional sports right now, majority owner, and it's Michael Jordan of all the professional sports. And Derek Jeter has a piece of the the Miami Marlins and Magic Johnson has a small piece of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and Serena Williams has a small piece of the Miami Dolphins. But in terms of majority ownership, Michael Jordan, and that's it. So absolutely, you've got to deal with this question of what are we going to do with the black athlete 
in terms of ownership. The fans believe that the player is there to perform for them, and that's it. I believe that the player is a citizen, and these players over the last several years have begun to show their citizenship, and they've begun to force the public to deal with their citizenship. It's not always been successful, as we've seen with Colin Kaepernick, and it's certainly not very successful when you see how media has decided to deal with the citizenship of players by questioning their citizenship, by calling them by calling them un-American and unpatriotic for taking a knee over social injustice. So it's certainly not easy, and it's certainly not something that I think has been accepted in any large measure, which is what they're fighting for. And I think that the players have a very, very difficult road ahead of them, and sometimes it's just much easier because let's not also forget that the narrative of professional sports is to tell the black athlete to be grateful, to tell all the players that they need to be grateful for their good fortune. And, and especially when you're the black athlete, you're the only, you're the only super rich, well-paid person in the country who's not allowed to speak more. I mean, why do we listen to Donald Trump? Why is he president? Because he has money. Why do we listen to Oprah or Mark Cuban? Because they have money. But when LeBron James speaks, we say, shut up and dribble and entertain us. So the narrative has to change as well. And once again, a lot of players simply decide, hey, it's not worth it. I'm going to stick to what I do and collect my money, and, and, and we can't make a dent. And then there are other players who say, no, I've got a platform. I've got a responsibility. I'm going to take that responsibility, and I'm going to take my chances and see what happens. And you point out, though, how often those people have to equivocate, how they have to conciliate because of the way that they are delivering their message. They don't want to be seen as, quote-unquote, anti-police. You read that Chris Paul negotiated, prefacing his comments in the same qualifying fashion, either that not all cops are bad or by announcing his personal bona fides, Paul's uncle was a police officer, and if that special qualification were required for him to voice an opinion in post-9-11 America, perhaps it was. What is the dog whistle men- uh, message, if you will, that is being sent to whites when Chris Paul mentions his uncle is a cop or when uh, LeBron James or anyone equivocates uh, th- that black-on-black violence is the same as poli- police violence against the African-American community? Absolutely. The, the the message is once again that the players are always in retreat, and that the and that the police have no accountability. That they don't have to have any accountability, and that that there's something once again, and especially in the backdrop of post nine eleven America, that the police are conflated as as the military as heroes, and that these people uh, simply by putting on the uniform are doing something heroic, and that cannot be. They cannot be challenged. And as long as that narrative exists, the less likely you're going to see any sort of reform because there's no, there's no desire to reform on, on their parts. And I always think about it this way as well, especially in the post-9-11 world where you see people wearing NYPD hats and FBI hats and CIA t-shirts. And they're not doing it ironically. They're doing it as some sort of fashion statement. Some of these these authoritarian symbols are now fashion statements. These people are also your juries. They make up, they're your peers. They make up the jury system. So if you're going to treat police like your favorite ball team, how on earth are you going to get them to become accountable when they shoot somebody unnecessarily? So once again, the dog whistle to me is this notion 
of of heroes and accountability and the the fact that even the notion of challenging police makes you un-American. It's a very dangerous road to be walking down. You write the black body is so important to NFL owners that it allows the league to celebrate Hall of Fame linebacker Ray Lewis, implicated in 2000 as a witness to an unsolved double murder. Lewis pleaded out of a two-count murder charge in exchange for his testimony and a guilty plea to obstruction of justice. To this day, the murders remain unsolved, and Lewis was not only welcomed back to the NFL but never had to leave. The NFL fined him $250,000, but placed him in such high esteem that his team, the Baltimore Ravens, gave him a uh, front office position after he retired and even erected a statue in his honor. ESPN, a league television partner, made him a lead on the prestigious Monday Night Football broadcast team. How could the football public accept such a uh, vulgar incongruity? In a sense, it was easy. Lewis fit the stereotype of what a black man is supposed to be, violent, aggressive, criminal. It was easy for Steve Biscay the owner of the Ravens to navigate Ray Lewis, black male anger sold. It was what the public expected from them, and it allowed white male owners to seem benevolent without having their power threatened. Is Ray Lewis a success with the NFL because he plays a stereotype-laden, even racist role that white team owners want to reinforce about African Americans? Is Ray Lewis reinforcing for white people that black people are angry violent, aggressive criminals? Well, by his elevation, absolutely. I mean, Ray Lewis is whatever Ray Lewis is, but I think that, I think it's in contrast when you think about how Ray Lewis has been elevated in contrast to Colin Kaepernick. What crime did Colin Kaepernick commit? What did Colin Kaepernick do to be treated the way he's been treated with the full weight of the federal government coming down on him. And when I say the federal government, I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Ruth, Gator, Ruth Bader Ginsburg attacking Colin Kaepernick as well. And I'm talking about the, you know, the Congress thing, you know, things about him as well. And all of these different, I mean, and each level of government has found a way to criticize this man, which is, which runs completely counter to the supposed principles that we have. And so when you think about this, you think about the weight of the country coming down on somebody who has a problem with an issue, by the way, police brutality, that cities are paying billions of dollars in settlements on. The city of Chicago has paid billion dollars in police settlements. Your taxpaying dollars go to paying out these different settlements after Laquan McDonald gets killed or after another kid gets killed. And no one does anything to Ray Lewis. In fact, Ray Lewis still has the floor. Ray Lewis has a job with the Baltimore Ravens. And Ray Lewis has a statue. And Michael Vick went out and told you know, Colin Kaepernick that he needed to cut his hair and some other ridiculousness. So I think when you put those players in contrast, you say, why are we celebrating and why are we rewarding the Ray Lewises of the world? Why do they get the floor when Colin Kaepernick exercised his citizenship in a very thoughtful way, even if you disagreed with him? Why does this man live on the margins of society right now in terms of his legitimacy? Why is he on the outside of it simply by disagreeing? Obviously, he's a very rich man from his NFL contracts and such, but... 
for what the country has done to him, why are we listening to Ray Lewis? That's my question. How much do you think Colin Kaepernick's actions were prompted, even provoked by, as you describe in your book, the increased militarization of the NFL? Is Are, are Colin Kaepernick's actions being condemned because not only did the NFL militarize football, but because the NFL militarized and even pushed even towards authoritarianism its audience. Absolutely, 100%, because post-9-11, they have embedded the military for money, not because of patriotism in any way, into the sport that you've got. You've got NFL teams and sports teams across the league, whether it's NASCAR, whether it's the NBA, whether it's the NFL, hockey, or the NFL involved in these relationships with with the Pentagon, selling war through sports, recruiting kids through football. And and Kaepernick's protest wasn't even about the military at all, and yet you have these symbols embedded into the game day experience. The police are on the field and they are conflated with the military. You have law enforcement appreciation nights across all pro sports. And so, of course, Colin Kaepernick is not going to be welcome when you challenge that, because now you're challenging the money, which is why what I'm saying is that we're not talking simply about systems. We're talking about all of the systems. We're not just talking about criminal justice system. We're talking about a system that allows incredible corporate pressure to be placed on anyone who is disagreeing with what's taking place. And they they place that enormous corporate pressure on you through your wallet. And that message is being sent. It's almost like Metacomet. Who wants to see, you know, do you want to be the next Colin Kaepernick? And that is the pressure that they place on you. Are you going to be the guy that gets blackballed next? And what did they do to Eric Reed? Eric Reed protested for the full season in 2017. He's also out of a job right next to Colin Kaepernick. So the message is being sent. The message is being sent very clearly, especially in the NFL, and which is why it is still so disappointing to me to see that that message was being sent and the players still went into business with the owners. And especially because these players, multi-million dollar players with huge corporate connections of their own, they've all got their own foundations. They all know people. They could have raised their money on their own without the owners and done their own social justice projects. They didn't need the owners, and yet... They immediately went right back to the nest. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. <laughs>